Our scripture comes from Luke, not John, Luke 3, 15 through 17, 21 through 22. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. I do not know what that means. That's a a tough saying, and it's spoken in spiritual language for us. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. When I was in the chaplaincy program at Shannon Hospital in San Angelo, Texas, out in West Texas, where I was serving on a church staff, I entered the room of a young Hispanic man who appeared to be about 19 or 20. It was hard to tell. He was young, is what I would say. He lay in the bed. He was unusually quiet. He was passive, very unlike a 19-year-old. He just laid there just as still as he could be, and his young wife held his hand as she sat beside him. Entering the room felt as if I had entered a sanctuary, sacred time, sacred space. I went in. I introduced myself to them, and I asked them why he was in the hospital. Why are you in this hospital bed? He looked exhausted and he looked weak, but he showed no outward signs of accident or surgery or anything like that, which was the custom on this floor that I was uh, assigned to. In quiet words, he began to tell me his story about the picnic that he and his wife had gone on the day before at a local park that ran alongside uh, the Concho River. He said he was standing on the side of a steep bank a short distance from the car where his wife was sitting. And suddenly the bank collapsed and he disappeared into the river and he fell so suddenly he didn't even have a chance to yell out to his wife before he was plunged beneath the surface. His wife never saw him fall. And the place where he fell was deep and it was still, the water was very deep. And under the water, a submerged tree lay hidden. The shore was steep, and the dry bank quickly became slick and muddy from his thrashing about. All his efforts to get a handhold on anything that would help him climb out were useless. On one of his lunges out of the water, his legs hung on the submerged tree limb beneath him, and in frantic desperation, He tried to free himself from its clutches. He told me while trapped under the water, he could see the trees above him through the water. He could see where the air was, but he couldn't get to it. 
He could see the sky and the clouds that were hovering over above, but he couldn't get himself free to get a breath, and he was trapped. Then he couldn't tell me anymore, and he began to openly weep. And his wife picked up the story. She began to tell the rest of the story about how a young girl who was playing nearby saw this happen and ran over to her in the car and said excitedly, your man has fallen into the water. She tried to convince the wife that her husband had indeed fallen into the the river, but the wife would not believe it. She didn't want to believe this story. And she told the little girl to leave her alone. She was very clear with her about uh, how much of a, a nuisance she had begun. But the little girl persisted. She continued with this dramatic truth that she had. Suddenly the truth of what the little girl had said became real to the wife. And she went over and she could see down in the water, she could see her husband's lifeless body just beneath the surface. And she frantically called out to the other picnickers who were close by in the park. And two men jumped into the river and pulled her husband's unconscious body from the river. One of them gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation until the ambulance came and rushed him to the hospital. His recovery came quickly and he apparently suffered no further damage. He was very, very fortunate. But the look in his eyes was all too real. It wasn't a spoken message, but I could tell his life was forever changed. He was only beginning to learn what his near-death experience had meant to him. I could tell by the way the two of them sat near each other and the gentle and loving way in which they regarded one another, holding one another's hands, that their love had deepened in this moment, in this experience together. They knew something about what it meant to love one another because they also understood now what it meant to lose one another. Don't you know there would be changes that would continue to come in their lives in the days ahead? Further reflection about this, deepening this truth that they had run into. The young man and his equally young wife were only beginning to understand what death and what life meant. Maybe that's something of which we could get a lesson about what it means to be baptized, of this moment of change that comes in our lives when we realize the line between life and death is quite something. The images of life before and life after are marked by this echoing reminder deep within our souls that we have died with Christ and we've risen with Christ in new life. The near-death experience of baptism is now something we carry with us for the remainder of our lives. You've got to know that the preachers have their jokes. When we go into the waters of baptism immersion and we've got the person there and the, the joke among the preachers is, hold them down till they bubble. That's a Baptist joke, by the way, not many of the denominations. Maybe this is why the other denominations have different modes of baptism. But it's this haunting memory of entering into the waters of death. And now we live with the power of being given our lives back. And so in a very real sense, in the waters of baptism, we share in the identity and the destiny of Jesus. 
This is a metaphor that is acted out in the church and has been acted out since John gathered people on the shores of the Jordan River. In our scriptures, Luke tells us when Jesus came to John the Baptist and requested to be baptized, this was something more than the message of of repentance as the motivation to be baptized. It was more than that. We think about that in, in maybe our lesser thoughts about baptism. It's all about repentance. It's more than that. John's preaching had served as the preparation for the coming of Jesus, this sense of expectancy, which is what the Scripture describes, that the people were gathered there in a spirit of expectation John warned people to get their lives in order because the Son of God would soon appear. John was so convinced of the uniqueness of the one that was coming, he made a comparison between himself and the coming one. John was baptizing with water, he said. But Jesus, as the Messiah, would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Following his baptism, as he stood there dripping wet, Jesus prayed. He said his own prayer. And in the middle of the prayer, the heavens opened up. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form bodily like a dove, the scripture tells us. The ancient symbol of peace. And God spoke, telling everyone there, the big voice came on. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one God says to them. Well, what do you think it all meant? What did the identity of being God's son mean to Jesus? And what does it mean to us today? In a Flannery O'Connor story, The River, pretty well-known short story, according to Flannery O'Connor, she wrote about the day Bevel, the child of alcoholic and abusive parents, was taken by his sitter to be baptized. He was taken to the evangelist by the babysitter, the child sitter. And after baptism in what the preacher called the river of the suffering son, the preacher said to Bevel, you count now. You didn't even count before. We enter the waters unformed, undeveloped. We're still young and we're immature about things and there's much that needs to grow up in us as new creatures. But we take the name Christian at our baptism as a gift, knowing that we need to move forward in faith and to grow in that name. So that eventually we grow to resemble the image of the one we've been named after, Christian. All of us at one time or another go through the search for identity. I think it's a human part of our journey that we take time to think about who we are. We think about where we've come from. We think about who we are. We think about where we're headed. We think about these three aspects of existence. We have this deep need to know these things. And maybe a starting point for us is to stop and to look into the waters, the graceful waters of our baptism to look down into the water and to reflect on what does it mean to be a follower of Christ. And gazing into those still waters, it will give you a reflected image of who you are. Who are you? You're someone for whom a name has been given. 
in linking ourselves with Jesus in the waters of our baptism, we come to realize who we are. In submerging beneath the waters, we remember, somehow we tap into a large, unformed memory that is out there of our baptism. We join with the memory of all those others with whom we share this place, this existence, this community called the church. In submerging beneath the waters, we remember. We tap into all of that memory. It's in our conversion we get in touch with the identity that has been ours for centuries. But also woven into the very fabric of this story is the necessity of change. There's something transformative about baptism that needs to become real in all of us. The New Testament claims that the old must pass away so that the new can come. I like what David Steinmetz had to say, that every conversion has a price. Something is gained, but something is lost as well. There's an exchange that goes on, and the loss may prove to be painful. The gospel not only resolves the problems which trouble us, it creates problems which we never had before and which we would gladly avoid. There is a price for transformation that we have to change. We're not left alone. We're not left to be. We're not left unchanged. That the significance of baptism always has its claim upon our lives. And the truth is, change we must. The work of the Spirit of God is such that slowly, imperceptibly, sometimes even dramatically, our old lives are challenged by the new reality of the redemption of God. We discover that because we have died with Christ and have been redeemed from that death to walk in the newness of life. Don't you love the way in which the words of the New Testament sort of echo in sound to these experiences? Because of all of those things, we are changed people. We've been immersed under the waters of our baptism, and we've been plucked from the watery grave so that when we rise, we can begin to learn to live up to our new name, Christian. Perhaps this kind of commitment is to Christ is something you might wish to make. Giving your life to God is the first step toward transformation. We mark this commitment with baptism as a step taken to signify our commitment as a follower of Christ. In a few weeks, we will be baptizing some kids from the youth group who've made their commitment to Christ. You know how it will happen. It will happen right up here behind me. It'll be the thing that will be a focus of our worship for that day. We will celebrate the, the wish for them to commit their lives to Christ. Wouldn't you like to join them? Maybe there's been a point where you have never made a commitment to Christ that was, that was symbolized by the act of baptism. These waters are here. And they are ready for those who wish to make a commitment to Christ. Come talk to me if you would like. Amen.